0: Well, turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. As we continue to go through this psalm, which is all about God's law, I hope that you are continually growing in your appreciation for God's law. There's good reason that the psalmist keeps telling us how wonderful it is. It teaches us about who God is and how he's designed the world to work. This morning... Uh, We'll begin in Psalm 119, verse 129, and we'll go down through verse 132, so just those four verses this morning, and then after we go through those four, four verses, we'll consider a principle about God's law, and we'll spend a good bit of time looking at one particular case law regarding oxen that will help us better understand how God's law works and what we're supposed to do with it today. So Psalm 119, verse 129 to 132. Go ahead and follow along as I read. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Well, verse 129 says, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Why does the psalmist say that the testimonies of the Lord are wonderful? What's wonderful about them? Let me just list some things for you, just kind of bullet points this morning. First of all, they're wonderful because they contain great truths. We have the mystery of faith, which is wonderful doctrines that are in there. We have the mystery of godliness, which is the way of life that God has designed for us, wonderful practice. They're wonderful because they have a wonderful effect in your life, in the life of a believer. They bring light and understanding, like we'll get into in the next verse. They, they offer us teaching and training and correction. They're wonderful because they show us where we came from and where we are called to. They, in other words, they show us the depth of our sin. And you, you see that when you look at the, the, the law of God and the penalty that we owe. But they also then show us, they point, to us, point us to the glories of our salvation, the blessings and the promises that God has given to us. God's laws are wonderful because they show us more than nature shows us. Or you can look at nature and you can learn some things about God. Romans 1 tells us that. You can, you can look at nature and you can observe that God is eternally powerful, but God's laws give us more than that. They bring us then to greater wonder because you can see God is eternally powerful when you look at the world that God has made but without scripture you'd never know that he used that eternal power to raise Jesus from the dead and that because of that one day you too will be raised from the dead we have a hope of eternal life and it's God's word that reveals that to us God's laws God's word is wonderful because it shows us the best way to live When we study God's law as a rule of life, we learn that God has revealed to us truly the best way to live. It's wonderful in that it's better than any other approach to life. God's law is wonderful because it shows us the perfect balance which God has designed for us. And here's what I mean by that. On the one hand, God's law is not what brings us into salvation, We know that, that you are saved by grace through faith. It's an act of the Spirit. We heard that last week at Church in the Park when we talked about John 3. You didn't do anything to be born and you don't do anything to be born spiritually. It's something that happens to you. But at the same time then, you're called to honor and obey God and God's law reveals that to us. And so it's part of this perfect balance that God has given us justification and sanctification. You're saved by grace, but then you work diligently to please God in response to the grace that he's shown you. All of those are reasons that God's law is wonderful. And and, and those things should help correct some of the errors that we fall into when we're thinking about God's law. It's easy for us to do. Some people think that the word of God is just, you know, it's basic and it's simple. But I'm really wrestling with, like, more complex questions of life. No, the Word of God is actually equipped to handle everything that life throws at you. Some think that religious belief is, is all about being spiritual. It's about the mysterious. But the Bible shoots down the idea of there being some kind of special hidden knowledge that we need in order to to reach some spiritual plane. The Word of God itself is wonderful. You don't need spiritual wonders beyond the Word of God. Some people are more trusting of their own human reason than they are of God's laws. You know, it's the the mindset that says, well, God's laws were great for those Old Testament people, but we've advanced beyond that today. Some people wonder at the, the earthly, worldly things around them. They're amazed by what they see in a telescope or a microscope or at the zoo, but they never lift their eyes beyond to the greater spiritual realities that God's law also reveals to us. Some people are enthralled by worldly philosophies, whether you're going all the way back to greats like Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, or it's the modern thinkers, you know, a a Jordan Peterson or someone like that, and they're enthralled by the worldly philosophies as if there's more wisdom to be found there than what's in God's word. But this verse tells us how we should rightly approach God's word as well, because If you're not approaching God's word with wonder, then you're missing something. It contains things beyond our natural understanding. And so we need to approach it even worshipfully, not that we're worshiping a book, but that we're worshiping the God who reveals himself to us in his word. Charles Spurgeon talking about God's laws says, those who know them best wonder at them most. Those who know them best wonder at them most. And the second part of this verse actually tells us that the word isn't just to be wondered at, but it also is to be kept. In other words, obeyed. Wonder should lead to obedience. Well, let's look at verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Broadly speaking, there's two kinds of truths in Scripture. There's The plain, simple doctrines that can be easily understood. And then there's deep mysteries that God reveals by his spirit when we work hard to understand them. In the last verse, the focus was on the wonder of God's word. Here, the emphasis is that even the simple can understand it. God's law brings light and understanding to the simple. So most things in scripture are plain. And nothing in scripture is impossible. Difficult, yes. Impossible, no. I appreciate how Peter writes about this. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. Listen to what he says. He says, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now catch this. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. I appreciate that Peter says that about Paul's letters. There's some things that are kind of hard to understand. But see what he follows it up with. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And then he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So some things are difficult. Rather than working to understand those things, some people instead twist them. But your responsibility is to take care that you don't get carried away away with the error of what kind of people? Lawless people. In other words, if someone says that God's law is to be set aside or ignored, you are responsible to reject that person's teaching. Don't be carried away by that human wisdom. It's important to realize that God gives understanding to the simple, those who are naturally weak of understanding. The Greek philosopher Plato had a school, and over the doorway to his school, it said, let none but the learned come in here. Well, that's not how Christ's school is. Christ invites the simple and the weak, and he teaches them by the Spirit. There's basic doctrines, fundamental things that are taught in a plain and easy way. Things like repentance and faith. You can see this in the book of Acts. This is Acts chapter 20, verse 21. Paul is speaking to the elders at Ephesus, and he says that he has faithfully taught both the Jews and the Gentiles. He says, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the basics, repentance and faith. And even the simple can understand the plain and basic doctrines of Scripture. God's law brings light and understanding. The basics of the faith are simple enough that every parent should be teaching them to their child. And we find commands in Scripture for us to do that. Deuteronomy 6, Ephesians chapter 6. Now, it needs to be said, too, though, that while the basic doctrines of Scripture are simple... Those things necessary for salvation are simple. No one should stop there. There's no excuse to just say, well, I've gotten that far and that's as far as I need to go. The author of Hebrews tells his readers that while they should be ready for theological meat, they're still drinking the milk that's designed for spiritual babies. They should be teachers, but instead they just sit and listen, never growing up and never taking responsibility. Paul says something similar to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Before we go on to the next verse, let me just briefly ask the question, though. How do we grow in our understanding? Listen to the answer that we're given in Proverbs 6. For the commandment is a lamp. And the teaching, a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. How do you gain understanding? God gives understanding through his law. By his spirit, yes. But through the law, we come to understand the mind of God. When we come to the case law this morning that we're going to talk about, I think you'll find that it reveals something of how God views people and animals and responsibility. In other words, the order with which God created the world. It makes sense, and it's the law that reveals to us the mind of God. Verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. We had some hot weather this last week. might be a little hard to remember now that it's cooler, but if you were working outside in the heat, I think you could probably relate to what the psalmist is saying here about opening your mouth and panting. You want water. You want your thirst quenched. That's the psalmist's attitude toward God's word. He longs for it. God's law is what will satisfy him. It'll quench his spiritual thirst. Now, how can it do that? Because it reveals God. And God is the only one who satisfies us. And those kinds of longings or affections are actually spiritually healthy. It's good for our soul. Otherwise, we'd be sluggish and lazy. When God gave, this is just an example, when he gave skill to Bezalel and Aholiab in order to to form the implements for the tabernacle and the furniture there. It wasn't just physical or mental skill. Exodus 36 verse 2 tells us that this was for every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. It wasn't just skill, their heart was in it too. And studying God's law is not just a matter of mental or intellectual ability, it's a matter of the heart. When we have strong affections, they can't be hidden. Uh, If you go on a long hike and you're coming back and you're hot and you're sweaty and you're wanting that water, you probably don't really care exactly what you look like at that moment. You just want the water, you just want the drink. What is it that's going to stir our affections like that for God, for his word? If I just boil it down, it's two things. Number one, knowing how valuable it is, okay? And and that's what the whole psalm has been about. And the second thing is knowing how much you need it. You're spiritually dead and dark and empty. We need God to give us life and light through his word. I wouldn't take life-saving medicine if I didn't know I needed it? But if I did know I needed it, why on earth would I not take it? And God's word is the most wonderful thing that we could have. It brings light and life, and we have a desperate need for it. So if you understand how wonderful it is and you understand your need for it, that should stir your affections to want God's word. Do you see how valuable it is? Do you see how much you need it? And then verse 132 this morning, Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. So here the psalmist is asking God to look favorably on him. And that means to look with love and compassion and blessing. Like when God looked on the afflictions of his people in Egypt, he acted, he had compassion on them, he rescued them. Those who love God's word can have confidence that God will look on them with favor. The psalmist says that this is God's way. Being gracious to us is his way. It's how he usually works. He shows favor to those he loves. In Exodus 34, God reveals a description of himself. And I think it's his favorite description because it gets repeated a lot of times all throughout scripture. And here's what it says. The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious. Notice that that's how he starts. Very first thing he wants his people to know about himself, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is God's way with those he loves. He shows them grace and mercy. So what kind of person is it that God regards, that he shows grace and mercy to? Well, first of all, we have to state no one earns God's favor. You don't act a certain way and therefore earn God's favor, earn his mercy and grace. But on the other hand, there are characteristics of the person whom God regards. For example, God does not have regard for the proud because they don't see their need for him. What kind of person does God regard? Let me just give you a few verses. He regards the humble, Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He regards the one who believes him, who fears him. Fears him. Psalm thirty-three, eighteen: 18, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. He regards those who are sincere and righteous. Psalm 11, verse 7, the upright shall behold his face. He regards those who love him. Ephesians six, twenty-four: grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, The last thing I want to point out on this verse is that when you have something to ask of God, like the psalmist here does, you have to ask on the basis of God's mercy, of his grace. We don't have any other way to come to God and ask him for things. You can't point and say, God, I've done this, so would you do that? No, we come and we ask on the basis of his grace and mercy. That's it. Thomas Manton said it this way. He says, let mercy be all your plea when you have any favor to seek from God. We cannot claim any good upon any other right and title. Now, what he's saying is the same thing that Daniel says in Daniel chapter nine. In Daniel nine, Daniel's praying on behalf of his people and the first half of the chapter is a prayer of repentance. Their, Daniel, on behalf of the people, is repenting for their sin. And listen to what Daniel says after he confesses the sins of the people. This is Daniel 9, 18. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel's request to God is made on the basis of God's grace and mercy. And that's how we should come before God. That's how the psalmist comes. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Well, the principle out of those verses that I want us to see this morning is simply this. God's law brings light and understanding. Okay, God's law brings light and understanding. And at first, this might seem a little disconnected from the case law that we're going to talk about, but I think by the end, you'll see how it ties in. We've talked in the past, for example, about the civil magistrate, someone who has a, 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 an office, a public office. And how they're supposed to carry out that office. How are they supposed to judge regarding civil laws? By what standard? Well, God's word, God's law, is what gives the light and understanding that they need. Now, we're not gonna rehash all of that today, but I wanna ask the question, how does God's law give light and understanding? And to answer that, I'm just gonna give you the illustration of this case law. And this is from Exodus chapter 21 verses 28 to 32. Go ahead and turn there. I want you to be able to follow along and see this. Exodus 21, verses 28 to 32. And I'll just, two things before we get into the verses. Number one, I'm very indebted to James Jordan for his explanation on this passage. Found it very helpful. The second thing is this. While you're turning there, let me just throw this chart up again and kind of point to where we are, right? Remember the chart. If we build from the bottom, we talked about how there is the law, The law underneath the law, which just means reality, the way the world is. And the way the world is, is because of who God is. God, in his character and attributes, created a world that is reflective of who he is. So the law underneath the laws is the character of God. Then, he said, when Jesus is asked, well, what's the most basic law? What's the most important law, the foundational law? His answer was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So we boil that down to love God and love others. And Jesus says, on those two, hang all of the law and the prophets. Everything else is built on those two ideas, love God and love others. So what does that look like when you start fleshing that out? Well, it looks like the Ten Commandments. So The first part of the Ten Commandments is telling you how you love God, right? Don't have any other gods before me. Don't have any idols. Don't take my name in vain. That's how you love God. And the second part is showing you how you love others. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't covet. Things like that, okay? And then you say, okay, well, what does that look like in terms of how we operate as a society built on those laws? And that is the civil law. That's what it looks like for a society to live that out. Now, when you have those civil laws and those laws get broken, how do you deal with it? Specifically, how do you handle uh, restitution and punishment and things like that? And that's the case laws. They illustrate how a society lives out the civil law. On the right-hand side over here, we have the ceremonial law. That is all the specific ceremonies that were given to Israel to illustrate how God was going to rescue his people. When an individual breaks God's law and that relationship with God is now broken, what's next? Is there a way to fix that? And this law reveals all that God was going to do in the salvation of his people. So you have laws of separation, that the Jew was different from the Gentile, and you have The laws of temple worship, so what does it it mean to bring a sacrifice, and what is that pointing to? And festivals and holidays, the cycle of time, that would reveal how God would go about this in history. That's the whole idea of the laws. Now, just like when you go, those of you that are old enough to remember shopping malls, when you go to the mall and you have the directory and it says, you are here, this morning, you are here. Case laws, okay? That's what we're talking about this morning in Exodus chapter 21. Let's read these five verses, and then we'll explain them just one by one. Exodus 21, starting in verse 28. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. Okay, we're going to explain this in five stages, just one verse at a time. All right, so let's look first of all at verse 28. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. What's going on here that the ox is going to be stoned? Well, on one level what's happening is this animal is becoming unclean the ox was considered a clean animal it's a gentle animal but if it changes and it now violently attacks and kills someone now it's considered unclean unclean animals kind of share the characteristics of the serpent in the garden they're, they're, they eat dirt or flesh they move on the dirt they're not separated from the dirt by hooves or scales or, or they're, they're split if they are, and they symbolically kind of revolt against man by killing men or other beasts, as if they don't accept the dominion of man. It's kind of a symbolic way of, of presenting that rebellion uh, in the animal world that pictures what goes on in the human world in our rebellion against God. But the ox has rebelled against its ruler, man, and therefore is treated as unclean. So you can't use its meat, okay? But the ox also faces justice. And there's a basis, there's a standard of justice here. And it comes from the law that's given to Noah in Genesis chapter nine. Let me read this for you. And for your lifeblood, God says to Noah, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So you have the principle here that man is made in God's image, and because there's a high value on human life, there's a death penalty when that life is taken intentionally. So it doesn't matter if it's a man or a beast that kills someone. The death penalty Is imposed. This law is given to Noah because it applies to the entire human race without exception. This is not something that's given as part of the law of Moses. You you can't even argue that this is somehow specific to Israel. This is for everybody. God gives this law. And the principle here is that animals are to be held accountable for their actions. Now, that's a little strange in our thinking today because we're kind of removed from this. But the more like a man an animal is, the more this applies. And it justifies the death penalty for an animal in a case like this. Then the just punishment is stoning because this is capital punishment. Now, it also states for us, though, that the owner is not liable. The owner suffers the natural consequences of living in a sinful world, like he loses the meat of the ox, he loses the work that the ox would have done, probably loses the hide too, because once the stoning is done, that hide isn't worth much. But the owner didn't do anything morally wrong, and so he's not held responsible in the eyes of the law. Now, just pause for a minute and think, how do we take a law like this and extend the logic of this law out to apply to other cases. Because that's how case law works, remember? A case law is an example, it's an illustration, and the judge would take that illustration and he'd apply it. So this law is not just about oxen. If there was some other animal that did the same thing, the judge would take the law about oxen and apply it to the other animal. The judge does not need laws about every single possible kind of animal. The one about the oxen is the example, and you reason from there. So, this can get extended in two ways. It can get extended to other species, right? The ox is just the example, but this would apply to lions. It would apply to snakes. It would apply to dogs. It applies to whatever animal. And you can extend this to lesser offenses. As is often the case, the Bible gives you the maximum, the maximum crime and the maximum penalty. So here you have someone's killed and so the death penalty is imposed. Now you can scale it back to lesser offenses and the judge could reason as to what needs to happen in those cases. And then I would also add, one other application of this would be, this is justification for for example, the process of training and disciplining a dog because you're imposing behavior expectations and consequences and things like that on the dog. So this would be a way of reasoning to say that that's a legitimate thing to do as well. That's how these case laws function. It's why also they are a sufficient basis for society. Because this law now covers All kinds of different scenarios. You don't need a stack of pages of laws three inches thick that cover all kinds of different animal events. This covers it. And the judge reasons from there. All right, let's move on to the next verse. Verse 29. If the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. Okay, so what's the difference in this scenario? Well, in this scenario, the ox has a history of violence. Clearly it didn't kill someone, because if it had, it would have been stoned, but it hurt someone, it acted violently. And the point here is, the owner is responsible, and so the owner now, knowing that this ox has a propensity for violence, You as the owner are responsible to prevent that from happening. The ox, now if it kills and it has this history, the ox is put to death and the owner is put to death. So the owner should assume that if his ox has acted violently once, it will do it again. And in the eyes of the law, He is responsible to make that assumption and to prevent that from happening. Now, some other variations, different scenarios to think about. If the ox is known to be violent and it attacks again and causes damage, but it doesn't kill, what should happen then? Well, you just combine this with other case laws. You say, well, the owner is still responsible, right? Because of the animal's history, he knew and he didn't restrain it. So now he's going to need to pay damages. So, for example, verse 19, you'd see someone paying damages for loss of work and medical expenses for a different kind of injury, but that would apply here too. And he's responsible for restitution to any damaged property. That would be chapter 22, verses 1 to 6. What about if a man has a tiger at his house, and it attacks and causes damage, but doesn't kill? What should be done? Well, okay, it's a tiger, right? You know what a tiger is like. You don't have to have a history of that tiger acting violently. You know that that animal has that kind of tendency. You can't just go, I didn't know. It's a tiger, you knew, right? So you're held responsible. Now that's easy to see with something like a tiger or a lion. But that would also apply to something like a pit bull. Despite how much people love their pit bulls, they have a propensity for violence. That doesn't say you can't own one, but if it causes damage, you are responsible. And there's plenty of studies and statistics that go with that. I mean, just look at the contrast, pit bull and a poodle. Which one do you expect is going to cause a problem, right? Okay, other applications. How about a leash law? If a city has a law that you have to have your dog on a leash, what are they saying? They are in effect saying, we view all dogs to be potentially animals that could cause damage. So if you have a dog that gets into the neighbor's flower bed and destroys it, you're on the hook. You should replace the flowers because the leash law is supplying the prerequisite of this presumption of violence or of some kind of damaging activity, right? Now, does that mean you have to keep your animal on a leash? No, in a godly society, there would be no penalty for not having your animal on a leash if it didn't cause damage, because God never imposes a penalty when there's no crime, when there's no actual damage caused. So, in a godly society, there would be no law against owning any kind of animal. You could own a lion, you could own a tiger, you could own a pit bull, whatever. But you are taking on that responsibility that if it causes damage, you're liable. That's how God's law works. It's only when an actual offense occurs that the penalty is given, because biblical law actually treats adults as responsible adult citizens. But there is a recognition of when you should know better. All right, next verse, verse 30. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. Now, in this scenario remember the man himself did not commit the murder if the man had committed the murder then the death penalty is non-negotiable that's a demand of god's law but since it's the ox that does the killing and the man is viewed as legally responsible he does receive the death penalty but there is the possibility of a ransom which would be some kind of payment that substitutes for his life. And it says the ransom is imposed on him. That means he's not the one who is coming up with this possibility. He's not arguing for it necessarily himself, but maybe it's the family of the victim, Maybe it's the judge who takes the circumstances into account. Whatever the case may be, the ransom is imposed on him. There's a heavy, heavy fine or penalty, but the man is allowed to live. Okay, that's the scenario here. If the ransom is laid on him, the ransom price for the man to redeem his life would be very high because the worth of a man is high. And he would have to pay whatever redemption price is imposed on him. All right, verse 31. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. Okay, what's the new element that's added in this verse? It's the scenario of it being a son or a daughter, rather than the man himself. Now, why is this stated separately? At the time when God's law is given, the standard pagan practice is, if you kill my son, I don't kill you I kill your son. I take away from you what you took away from me. Okay, that's standard pagan practice. An example would be the Code of Hammurabi. Now, this is an ancient law code. This dates to the same time period as when Israel is in slavery in Egypt. Okay, so Code of Hammurabi says this. If a builder works badly and the house collapses and kills its owner, the builder is to be put to death. But if the owner's son is killed, it is the builder's son who is to be put to death. That's standard pagan law. God is now distinguishing his law from pagan law. He's going to say, no, we don't operate that way every man is going to be individually responsible for his own sin or crime. God's law is going to be different than this. Now, did he have to do this? Yeah, I mean, partly because it's just, partly because Israel had adopted this pagan practice. You can see this in Deuteronomy 24. Um, I'm sorry, this is Genesis 42. This is when Jacob's family is... um, the whole scenario where Joseph's already down in Egypt and Jacob is, he doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to let people go down. And Reuben is arguing, I need to bring Benjamin down because this is what the guy demanded. But Jacob doesn't want to lose his favorite son, Benjamin. And Reuben promises Jacob that if, he says, if I take him down there, if I don't safely bring him back, this is Genesis 42, 37, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. See, Reuben is arguing on the basis of pagan law. And that's what Israel had imbibed. And God is going to distinguish his law from that. So God says, Deuteronomy 24, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. It's the principle of personal responsibility. And here in Exodus 21, we are told that he, in other words, the man whose animal killed, not his son, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. And so the principle here is that when there's no complicity in the crime, there's no guilt. The man is complicit because he actively ignored the likely potential violence of the animal. But the child isn't complicit. It's not his animal. Two examples from scripture to help illustrate this. When Achan stole the goods from the city of Jericho, am I getting the wrong city? Okay, AI. When when Achan steals, no, he stole it from Jericho, that's why they lost it AI, sorry, brain freeze. When Achan steals, who pays the penalty? His whole family, why? because they were all complicit in hiding the stolen goods. It was in their family's tent and they didn't reveal that. But when Korah rebels against God, against Moses, Korah's family distances themselves from him and they're spared. There's no penalty for them. So you can see that idea of personal responsibility and complicity there. Now, are you seeing how God's laws are wonderful? In other words, the wisdom that is there, how they bring light and understanding. This is such a simple little, like five verses of laws about oxen goring people, that just is a treasure trove of wisdom about how to understand the world the way that God has designed it. Last verse, verse 32. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. Now, what's the new element or variation in this verse? Well, the victim here is a slave. And the difference in justice is that while the ox is still stoned, the repayment to the owner is set at 30 shekels of silver rather than the high price of restitution for a free man. So the question obviously right off the bat is, is this treating slaves as less than human and more like an animal? And the answer is yes and no. The fact that the ox is still stoned shows you that the slave is viewed as a person. But the fact that the repayment is set at 30 shekels shows that there is a difference. Now, why the difference? A slave is subject to other men in a similar way that animals are subject to men. Remember, the creation mandate is have dominion over the beasts, and the slave has entered into being under the dominion like a beast. Okay? God has taught, though, that through, he's taught through his law that slavery, while it is a legitimate choice for getting out of debt, it's not ideal. No one should remain a slave. Because God's ideal is freedom. And God provided two ways of getting out of slavery, right? And becoming free. First is you save up the money that you're paid as a slave, you pay off your debt, and now you're free. The second is because you find yourself in a great household situation, you ask the owner to adopt you and you become a son servant who's legitimately even an heir in the household. And so you escape basic slavery in that way. But the law illustrates how God views slavery. Slavery is not wrong, but it's not ideal. It should always be seen as temporary, a step toward freedom or sonship. So the price of 30 shekels is a tangible reminder of how God views slavery. The fact that the ox is put to death reinforces that this is a person, but the slave price is a a strong reminder of the fact that slavery is not ideal, that you should be working to move out of that. Okay, now, that's the five verses. Let me just kind of wrap this up, kind of draw some conclusions. The case law regarding the violent ox demonstrates what the psalmist told us in Psalm 119 about God's laws. God's laws are wonderful. When you see how this law about a violent ox gives us the guidance we need about any animal that causes any kind of damage or death that's something to wonder at in our society today we come up with pages and chapters of laws on all this stuff and it's still not as good and righteous as what god gave us in these five verses and god's laws give light and understanding If our civil rulers would take the wisdom that God has given here and apply it to our society, we would have much greater freedom. You wouldn't have dumb laws that say things like you can't own chickens, for example. There wouldn't be any penalties when there's no crime that's actually been committed. And we would have very effective law enforcement mechanisms that would prevent the vast majority of the offenses. Because if you have an animal that's potentially violent, and you know that if that animal kills someone, you lose your life, are you gonna take that possibility seriously? Yes, you are, as a responsible, free individual. This also teaches us how how to function even in different spheres of of government. So we, we talk about the three spheres of government being family and church and state. Think about how this helps you in your family. You can use these principles to teach your family, to govern your family. If your daughter has a pet dog that is known to chew up socks and she doesn't properly restrain or train that dog and it chews up her brother's favorite socks, she should be responsible to replace them. If your son is responsible to put the chickens in the coop but he fails to do it, and they get into the garden, and they destroy the tomatoes, guess who should be buying the tomatoes next time you're at Aldi? Okay, so this helps you with how you should operate, even in terms of the way your family runs. In the church, when the church is called on to resolve a dispute amongst believers, we should be operating by God's principles, not by secular principles. State government, the, the principles tell us how the state should function. Does our state function this way? Of course not. So what should we do? Well, first of all, we should function according to God's law, even when the state does not. Second, we should elect officials who will function according to God's law. Granted, that's the long game. We recognize that that's not always a possibility right off the bat. So that's the long game. And third, in a situation like ours, where... We are so often very far gone from these biblical principles, we need to be learning today what those principles are. We need to understand them and teach them so that someday when we have revival, when our children are rebuilding the ruins of culture, whatever the case may be, God's laws can then at that point be put in place to govern the state. That's playing the long game. But if we don't know what those principles are, we'll never get there. That's why it's important for us to understand it. And the one final application that I want to give you this morning of this law, strange as it may sound, is how this law points us to Jesus. In Jesus' death, he was valued as the gourd slave of verse 32. The price for Jesus was 30 shekels of silver, the value of a slave. Judas was paid 30 shekels of silver to betray Jesus. Now, there are psalms that are messianic psalms. They speak about the Messiah who would come one day. Psalm 22 is one of them. Let me share a few verses from Psalm 22. Many bulls encompass me, Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So you hear the language of being violently attacked by a bull or an ox or a beast. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have heard me from the horns of the wild oxen. So here it's even specific about the horns of the ox that the Messiah, is asking for deliverance from. So one way to describe Jesus' death, because that's what this psalm is about, is that he died the death of a slave gored by an ox. That he was a slave shows that he was taking our place. That he was gored by an ox shows that he was violently opposed killed by unclean beasts. In other words, those men who are opposed to God. Now, there's another psalm that has something to say about this as well. Psalm 68 is a psalm that speaks of God's victorious scattering of his enemies. And verse 30 says, Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot the pieces of silver. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. So again, we have beasts and bulls and the psalmist asks God to rebuke them and he asks God to trample underfoot the pieces of silver and scatter the people who make war against him. If I'm understanding that rightly, that's speaking of Jesus' resurrection where God declares the victory of Jesus over sin and Satan and death. The beasts who violently attacked Jesus are rebuked. The slave price of pieces of silver is trampled. It's seen to be meaningless as Jesus rises as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and those who war against him are defeated. In this case law about a violent ox, we have, on the one hand, very practical instruction about how we should interact with animals and about how and when man should be held accountable for the actions of his animals. But we also have embedded in this law a picture of christ in his death and resurrection and the salvation that he accomplishes for us so can you agree with the psalmist in psalm 119 this morning that the laws of god are wonderful that they bring light and understanding let's pray lord we are thankful for your law for your word There are so many things in scripture that are simple and easy to understand and we have trouble even mastering those things and then there are things that take a little more work but you've told us that your word gives light and understanding to the simple help us to be diligent to understand your word that we would want that light and that understanding i thank you this morning for the wisdom that is here that teaches us even about how we should think about our animals and How we should think about personal responsibility and and property and things like that. But we especially thank you for the picture of Christ. Christ, who in his humility took on the form of a servant, not counting equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. But he took that form and he came and he died in our place. He died a death he did not deserve a humiliating death. And he did that in our place. We're also thankful for the resurrection, for the victory that he gains over the grave and over sin and death and hell. And the fact that he gives us that victory as well. And we receive that because of your grace and mercy, because that's your way with those who love you. And so we're thankful this morning. And I pray even this morning as we share the Lord's Supper together, that that our minds would be drawn to you, but that our hearts would as well. That we would be worshiping you here in this moment but then also living the rest of our lives this week out of gratitude to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.